0: This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry.
1: Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support.
0: This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and longtime listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendorf, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Pro. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Sarah Bessie. She is the author of several works, including Out of Sorts and Jesus Feminist. She is the co-founder of Evolving Faith, along with co-hosting its podcast. She's also American Post Evangelical's favorite Canadian. Sarah, thank you for joining the conversation.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. That feels like high praise when you consider that there are contenders like Shania Twain out there. So, yay. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, wow. We're going to, and Ryan Reynolds, there's so many great Canadians out there. My there wife are. would of course say Celine Dion. So
1: of course, Celine Dion.
0: Uh, so, so we had you on the podcast in 2017. Uh, anything major happened in your life in the last four years?
1: <laughs> a few things, a few things. Honestly, I, I don't even know where to begin sometimes. My goodness. I can't believe it's been four years since we chatted.
0: It's, it's been, yeah, it's been a long, you've been very busy, uh, in, in very positive ways. So, uh, what's the pandemic experience been like in a country that's people and government actually took it serious?
1: <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it definitely has, you know, it's still been difficult, I think, for everybody all around the world and um, a lot of loss and um, change for a lot of folks. I think that um, we have weathered it pretty well, though, Um all things considered, it has felt like everybody kind of did what they needed to do, especially for our first wave. Um, The second wave was a little bit harder, but at the same time, we knew so much more by then. But I mean, again, a lot of those things that felt very politicized in other parts of the world were just, were not as big of a deal, like in terms of like, we just all wear masks, you know, the household kind of watching for who can be where and what. And it's been lonely and hard for a lot of folks. But for the most part, um, I feel like everyone did the best that they could. And I have a lot of confidence in our public health officials. And so, yeah, I mean, that that helps, right? It helps to actually feel like the people in charge are not like inept. That's always nice.
0: Like, you know, not only Canada's form of uh, Canadian form of handling the pandemic, but like Canada's just been on a roll. Uh, you know, everybody's just finding Shit's Creek and all its success, and true. Uh, so, it makes so me we, feel very happy. <laughs> yeah, we just we just look to y'all for all the answers in life. Now uh, we will no longer refer to you as America's hat. <laughs>
1: That's fine. We'll no longer refer to you as Canada's pants. How's that?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've also heard it as uh, Amer- uh, Canada's jean shorts. So there's there's that yeah, too. So there
1: you go. I had somebody ask me. They said, um, "So in Canada, does it feel right now like you're the usually we used to see you as like the boring neighbor who lived above us, and now I'm pretty sure Canada must feel like they're living above like a meth lab." <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, you're not wrong <laughs> yes yes all right so for a lot of people they they picked up jesus feminist or out of sorts you know a few years after they got big like super big so i wonder if you'd be willing to to retell your story of how you got into writing and how it resonated with so many people leading you to to write several books
1: um yeah that's that's a good question i i you know, I kind of got my start in terms of writing the way a lot of people did um, back then, which is just on the internet. I mean, my background was always more in um, marketing and in um, strategic planning. And I worked in financial services and nonprofits, and I would just loved to write. Um, and so, you know, like a lot of people back in, you know, the mid-aughts, just, you know, a blog sounded like a great idea. <laughs> and so, you know, I probably wrote for, you know, a really long time before anybody paid any attention to it, but it was the place where I began to realize that these questions um, and doubts and wonderings that I had um, about faith and about Jesus and church and justice and politics and the and the world, um, I was not as alone or as crazy as I thought, and finding each other out there in that wilderness was a really Um, transformative thing because it made me realize I'm actually part of a company of people that there's there's whole communities of people who are finding themselves in this place of saying um, but what if we're wrong Um, what if there's more to learn here and so that was actually how I met Rachel um, Held Evans who was uh, you know a really dear friend to me and a lot of people Um, and so I think that that was kind of the beginning and I mean by the time that I started working on Jesus Feminist. Um, to me, it was never meant to be like, you know, again, I'm not an academic. And like a lot of us, I think, who were writing at that point, there was this sense of almost like we had sneaked past the gatekeepers of Christian publishing in a lot of ways. Um, for a long time, there was the one particular type of person who usually got published or that people had a book written by. Um, and so for people like me and Rachel and a whole host of other folks who kind of came, uh, came of age at that time, there was this sense of like, we kind of found each other out here and it turned out there were a lot of people like us. And so then we kind of got to start writing about the things that mattered to us, like Jesus Feminist, which for me was more about the kingdom of God and an invitation into the full flourishing of, uh, of walking together um, in the, the fullness of who we are as, as women and as men. And so I think that that was kind of the, the starting point for me of saying these conversations and these people and these um, things that we care about, that we're not alone in those things. And that was a, that was a good starting point for that. But um, that's probably more information than you felt you needed to know. But that was what ended up leading actually on to even out of sorts, which I wrote a couple of years later, because that for me was about, you know, here's what it looks like when your faith is evolving. um, When you are finding that the boxes you constructed for God no longer, you no longer fit in them any longer, or God doesn't fit in them any longer. Uh, And what does that look like Um, to be part of a wilderness people um, who are finding God and intimacy with God in the wilderness, as opposed to in the safe certainties that we've been kind of taught to expect from God. And then everything just kind of went from there.
0: As I said in the opener, you're, you're the co-founder of Evolving Faith, um, and I would be remiss if we didn't pause to point out um, the late, great Rachel Held Evans, which you just did, was a fellow co-founder in this movement. Um, you know, It's hard to believe that she's been gone for almost two years, and I know that you could literally speak the rest of this interview about her life and her legacy, but maybe tell us about her work uh, and how it directly impacted the formation of Evolving Faith
1: is really hard to believe that it's going to be two years soon um god um when rachel and i began to kind of envision evolving faith um we didn't really have this sense of like wanting to start something or a big movement by any stretch of the imagination, or I, you know, I just didn't even know what to expect. Um, But she had just released Searching for Sunday, um, which is just a brilliant, beautiful, best-selling book. And I had just come out with Evolving, uh, pardon me with uh, Out of Sorts, And like a lot of things, Rachel and I in our work, we were often just kind of alongside of each other and cheering each other on and caring about very similar uh, conversations at the same time. And so when we were shepherding those books and and speaking, and we would often speak at events together, um, we just kind of looked at each other and we were like, you know, it might be fun just to throw together a weekend, you know, together. And we'll just see if anybody else wants to come and we'll invite people that we trust and we like. And that we listen to. um, And let's just have a weekend in the woods and hang out. You know, a lot of times I think the experience of deconstruction um, or of this sense of of, um, disorientation, even in our faith, can feel really profoundly lonely. Um, it can feel very isolating, especially if you're in a community where your belonging is really dependent and hinges on your staying in line. When you become someone who steps out of line, it can feel very lonely. And so we were kind of thinking, what would it be like so that people didn't feel quite as alone? Uh, If we just had a weekend where we were able to be together and we were just honestly pretty overwhelmed by the response that first year that would have been in 2018 fall of 2018 um because I remember I have like this very clear memory of her and I being like backstage it's like again I didn't know anybody would show up and we had too many people show up and it was a logistical nightmare like from start to end it was a logistical nightmare but I remember looking at her and we had like this expression on our faces that were like equal parts joy and terror because we didn't know what we were doing. And I think that um, that sense of like, I think we underestimated the hunger. I think we underestimated the need um, and the longing that people had to talk honestly about um, faith and about um, justice and about the things that they wanted to rebuild on um, and the hunger that people had for the gospel um to be preached and to hear again uh and and be reminded of what was precious to them and what was worth holding on to and what would what needed to be let go of. Um and then it just kind of went from there. You know, we um had a lot of plans. We came home from that event, Rachel and I, and we being who we are, we sat down and built out like this big beautiful three year plan kind of for evolving faith now that we understood a little bit more. Um, And it was right before we were going to be putting uh, tickets on sale for another gathering um, that she fell ill, and then we lost her. And it was a really devastating, um, I spent a lot of time thinking that we would not do Evolving Faith anymore because I just didn't know how to do that (laughs) without her. you know we added jeff chu to our team um right after that first gathering and so i had a really good friend at my side along with jim chafee our partner and there was this sense of do we keep going or not um, and ultimately, that year, we just felt this real sense of, of wanting to still be together. And so we did gather in Denver, and it was hard, um, but it was also really true, and it was really beautiful. And it's just continued to grow since then. You know, we had another gathering last year that was all, of course, online and virtual, like a lot of us having to, you know, learn whole new platforms and ways of gathering and ways of being, which I never, you know, want to have that learning curve ever again in my life. Uh, You know, podcast and a lot of other plans, Um, but the gaping absence of Rachel definitely continues to to be a a deep source of grief for me, for sure.
0: I I can't even imagine the sense of loss as as a as a close friend and sojourner. Um, You know, as a as a person that had the fortune of of following her work all the way when you know began very early on. You know, having her in the podcast, she was a, a friend to CBF in many sense. Um, you know, but I didn't know her personally, and yet I found myself I could tell you exactly where I was um, when I, I found out the news, and I was with my kids in a hardware store, and I started just. St- sobbing and my you know my two daughters had no idea what was going on asking me and I was trying to explain to them you know through you know you know if you've ever been crying you just can't get words out you know and it's just such a devastating loss and yet this movement that y'all have helped create um, is such a wonderful legacy that points back to um, the formation that she helped bring to so many people who are trying to deconstruct um, what they were raised in and trying to discover something new Um, you know, things like the conference and the podcast are the more visible things about evolving faith, but what are some of the more unseen and impactful things you do?
1: Mm, That's a good question. You know, a lot of the things that we are passionate about have happened behind the scenes, um, you know, with folks in terms of conversations, in terms of the thoughtfulness that goes into, um, you know, crafting moments. I think, um, Jeff is really, really gifted at shepherding people. And I think that that was one of the things that we realized really early on, um, after that first gathering, Rachel and I was how, um, how lonely and isolating the wilderness can feel for people. And also um, how unshepherded it can feel. Like what does spiritual formation even mean and look like if you're not, you know, in maybe the same lane that you were, or if you have questions. Um, And so who are your good teachers? And so I think a lot of times when it came to evolving faith, that was where I have really seen and been so grateful for Jeff's leadership because he just has such a heart for spiritual formation and all the ways um, that you can communicate that or make room for that um, and show what your priorities are. You know, I think about, you know, the continued expansion of, um, you know, we have this, you uh, you know, thing around human flourishing, a commitment for human flourishing um, that weaves its way through every decision we make, every dollar we spend, the people that we are in relationship with and in conversation with um, in our small, you know, in our social media groups and the conversations that are, are led there and, um, you know, in in who we want to uh, center even um, an honor. And I think that we can begin to see more and more of those things begin to develop. One of the things I was really, really uh, proud of that we did last year, there were a couple things. Um, one of them was we just, you know, hugely expanded our uh, scholarship program in order to get as many people who wanted to come and couldn't afford to come uh, in the door. And I mean, we ended up with people from all of the continents except for Antarctica. We had people, the international people who aren't able to travel or folks who, you know, are, again, of course, with the pandemic, so many people are having financial difficulties and being able to just kind of fling open the doors and just give scholarships and give things to people that was really beautiful and meaningful to be able to do, you know, quietly behind the scenes without anybody knowing their names and not, you know, asking for a round of applause or, you know, parading anyone out to, you know, pat ourselves on the back. That meant a lot to us. Um, And the other thing that we did this last year that we're wanting that we did as a pilot program, and we're probably going to be incorporating into evolving faith moving forward, was around um, spiritual direction and spiritual care, where we provided that, you know, for free to our folks and just said, listen, we have all these spiritual directors and pastors and leaders who signed up just to volunteer their time. And they, people would sign up for a spot and have, you know, some time to sit down and process through their evolving faith with someone who was alongside of them, right? So, you know, especially if you feel very unshepherded and uncared for um, and very lonely, you could sit down for a few minutes and have some time for spiritual formation, have someone to pray for you, or just have someone look at you in the face and say, how is your soul? Um, And those things happening behind the scenes, that kind of stuff just really excites me and means the world to me because I think it's really, really beautiful to make room for that. Um, You know, as people, I think, especially begin to move out of the burn it all down, tear it all down stage and are beginning to want to say, all right, I can name everything I'm against, um, but now what am I for? And that, that question really intrigues me. Um, and I see us as a place where people begin to reimagine and dream about what they want to be for.
0: You know, I guess my only follow-up question to that is, um, what's your beef with Antarctica?
1: <laughs> what's their beef with me? <laughs> um.
0: Everybody loved Canada, but maybe, maybe not the more colder places. Maybe in the not. No. <laughs> can uh, confirm. <laughs> so you've got a new book out, uh, a Rhythm of Prayer. Uh, this work is a collection of meditations from various authors like Nadia boltz weber Alicia T. Crosby, and Caitlin Curtis. Um, when you were pulling together the entries for this book, did you kind of feel like you were making a like a, a fantasy hockey roster with all the best players, or, or like? <laughs> you know, reading the work of all the members of of the Justice League, if they all had journals, you know, how did you get so many great thinkers to contribute?
1: Listen, I just, I never could have imagined a, a world in which I'd be exchanging emails with Barbara Brown Taylor, could not. You know, there was, that's actually really deeply connected to what we were just talking about, because it was, I had been wanting to write about prayer for a while, Um, mainly because it was something that often came up in conversations that I had with people because prayer is such an integral part of my life. And it's been one of the things that, um, that I have explored and practiced and experimented with and played with for pretty much the whole time i've walked with jesus and yet for a lot of folks who have found themselves on the other side of a faith shift oftentimes if you lose the ways that you have always been taught how to pray which usually involved a lot of you know formulas and acronyms um, you think then that you've lost prayer and it can even feel very fraught right? It can be a really, really tender bruise for a lot of folks. And so people would ask me about it all the time, I think, because I love to pray. And, you know, I end all my books with a benediction. And um, I knew I wanted to write about it. But for a while, I couldn't seem to find a clear path to write about it in a way that wouldn't also be formulaic and prescriptive. Um, And so I just kind of was holding it for a while there. And then, in the immediate aftermath of losing Rachel, um, I just, I needed something to put my hand to. (laughs) And, you know, Rachel and I loved to work alongside of each other. And I love my work. I love what I get to do. Um, I've feel incredibly fortunate every single day of my life to do work that I find meaningful and good. Um, But in my grief, after losing her, I thought I need to work, I've got to put my hand to something or I'm going to just sink. And so it was in that summer that I thought, okay, I want to write about prayer. And I just realized I couldn't do that on my own. Um, And so there was this sense of saying, okay, I remembered um, prayer circles which transcend a lot of different denominations and cultures and even religions um, of just, I, I could really use the community of prayer. I could use a a community of people whom I trust to be honest about prayer um, about the state of the world right now, about their own grief and even rage um, about their own tender places and, and longings about all the ways that we have, to pray. Um, And what would it look like if I went to the people I trust and just said, let's build a prayer circle together. And so that's literally what I did. I mean, the people who are in this book are people that I either know, uh, have known for a really long time and are friends, or they're people whose work has mattered to me or has um, ministered to me in some way. And people whom I trusted with my own broken heart and with the people who would be picking up a book like this, who maybe have lost prayer or um, feel like it's a very fraught place um, or practice for them. And so it was quite funny because as the, you know, I kind of went to them and I just tended it with a very light hand. I just said, you know, here's what I want to do and let's just see what develops. And as their prayers began to kind of ping into my inbox and as I began to write my own prayers and my own meditations around it, it really began to become clear to me that this was what i needed for a book about prayer all the way along which was less about techniques and you know theological arguments you know when you are have crossed a threshold um in your faith or in your um your understanding of god sometimes what we most need is permission um and language um, that we need a broadened imagination. And I think that this book gave me that. Um, and so it's my hope that that will also provide that for everyone else who picks it up now.
0: We need to pause from this fascinating conversation to tell you about one of our annual sponsors. BSK, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, is hosting the annual Henson Lectures on Monday, March the 1st, from 10.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The E. Glenn Henson Lecture Series started in 2009 and honors the life and work of Dr. E. Glenn Henson by inviting lecturers who share his passion for Christian scholarship in and for the life of the church and the world. This year's lectures will be held virtually and will be free, allowing anyone interested in participating in this highly regarded series. This year's speaker is Dr. Doug Weaver, Director of Undergraduate Studies and Professor of Baptist Studies at Baylor University. Dr. Weaver's lectures are entitled, Holy Spirit Power, Baptist and the Experience of Pentecostalism, and Baptist and the Charismatic Experience, from Cessationism to Carpet Time. Visit bsk.edu backslash Hinson for more information or to register. While you edited the book, you also wrote a lot of pieces for the book. uh, And I like to talk about a few of these. Um, One of my favorite things you wrote was about prayer for when you don't even know what you want. And you invited um, the prayer to settle down at the silence, to focus on their breathing, to speak the name of God that rises to their lips. You hinted at this, you know, just a few moments ago, but. But walk us through the evolution of prayer and your faith journey.
1: Now, that's, that's kind of an interesting one for me because I, I mean, I don't know what necessarily if a whole lot of folks um, who are listening maybe came or maybe they were influenced or intersected at some point with some of the movements that really shaped uh, my early formation um but I came of age in you know small happy clappy churches that were highly influenced by American prosperity gospel word of faith stuff um and so for me the way that I was originally taught prayer was very much like a way to control outcomes if that makes sense um that it was a lot of victory, a lot of confession and declaration, um, a big theme of like expecting a miracle and, you know, shouting Bible verses at God and calling them, reminding him of their promises, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So it was a very um, declarative and certain form of prayer. Um, there were definitely moments of like intercessory prayer and, you um, you know a lot of people who prayed differently within those traditions which i think gave me a lot of hope and there was a lot of intimacy with people who were you know considered intercessors or prayer warriors maybe but for me um i lost that ability to pray like that um probably my mid-20s and it was because of how a lot of people, I think, who maybe came up in those kinds of traditions that highly value certainty and, um, and results and have expectations around uh, control. Um, and, you know, there's the naming and the claiming. <laughs> and so um, losing that happened for me at, at the point when I began to realize that there were a lot of people like me who were in this company of people with unanswered prayers um, who were the ones who were still sick and the ones who were experiencing loss. Um, and that began to awaken me to all the people who were part of this, but also the world, if that makes sense, um, that also existed alongside of you know my need to, you know, have things turn out the way that I wanted them to. And I think that that happens for a lot of people, right? I mean, I've heard, talked to a lot of folks who were given very clear ways to pray that involved, you know, um, ask and supplication and, and Thanksgiving and, you know, like all these other kinds of, you know, boxes almost to tick when it came to prayer. And so when I lost prayer, um I just thought, well, that's it. If I can't pray like this, then I don't get to pray anymore. And I, I'm go- going to miss that because I think I really love the idea of prayer, but I don't even know what that could be now. And that kind of launched, um, it was very um, integrated into my own uh, deconstruction and um, and then even a, re- a rebuilding because that was what gave me space then to say, okay, sometimes you need to unlearn things in order to have room to relearn or, um, or be introduced to um, things. And so that was the beginning of me actually finding uh, liturgy in the book of common prayer and ancient prayers when I didn't have language. And I couldn't part the weeds of my own traditions language to say this is totally different. Um, And and I I was really drawn to um, praying um, words that were being prayed all around the world by so many different generations and knowing that people had wept their way through these words that they had held onto them, uh, clung to them even. And so in a lot of ways I borrowed prayer and borrowed language for prayer borrowed even hope and faith from people, um, and then began to learn about all the different ways that we can pray, whether it's centering prayer, and breath prayer, and silence, and embodied prayer, and, um, you know, benedictions, and I mean, just so many different ways to encounter God. Uh, contemplative prayer has become deeply, deeply important in my life. Um, And I've learned about that from everyone, from monks to my son back when he was like six or seven, right? Like, Just what does it mean to sit with Jesus and just understand the conversation that we're having all along, which is the love of God. And so, yeah, I think that that's, I think that's, that's most of it.
0: Um, You know, in your introduction, you wrote that this book is not intended to give you prayers, but to help you to pray. In all my years of ministry, I think prayer has been one of the most challenging tasks for those entrusted to my care. You know, so I guess my question is, why do you think we overcomplicate prayer?
1: Mm. That is a good question. I, I, I'm sure that there's a lot of reasons why we have overcomplicated prayer, um, why we have wanted to... Um, reduce mysteries down into certainties and, and become efficient or productive when it comes to prayer. Um, a lot of times we, we, we approach prayer with what's the way I'm going to get my prayer answered right in the, in the way that I want it to be answered. Um, and I think maybe it's because we've missed the thing of prayer being that of, of, you know, knowing God, And being with God. Um, I I told this story, I want to say it was in my book, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things. Um, And if you need to cut this out, Andy, feel free. I don't know if it'll be helpful to your folks or not. But, you know, I was kind of chasing around at the time a bit about prayer and kind of wanting to know more about what to pray and how to pray, um, how to even contend for hope when it came to prayer. Um, what posture to bring to prayer. And um, my son, um, back when he was like six or seven, so it's been a while now, and I do have his permission to share this story. He's signed off on all that. I don't usually trot my children's spirituality out for public consumption, but this was a really formative thing for me, and he's, he's okayed me sharing it now. Um, but he has, in this class, And this teacher had asked them to draw a picture um, of what they think prayer is, um, which to me, I think is really beautiful uh, invitation for kids or for us even. And, you know, she called me in and asked me to come and sit down and take a look at what Joe had done, um, which again, anyone who's a parent knows that can go like one of two ways, so. know we'll see where it goes. But I remember sitting down and she showed me some of the other pictures that the other kids had done. And it was, you know, the things that I think a lot of us would say about prayer. You know, it's the pastor at the front of the church praying at at church, or um, you know, your mom and dad tucking in at bedtime or Grace around the table. There I remember there were a couple kids who thought that like this might count as prayer. And so they asked for what they wanted. And so there were like pictures of like an iPad and a few other things. And And then she kind of flipped over Joe's picture and she slid it across the table to me. And she said, I just wanted you to see what Joe drew. And he had drawn a picture of himself, you know, sticky up brown hair and sitting on our back deck um, in a chair and the sun was shining. And he had drawn Jesus uh, sitting beside him. And they were holding hands and they had those little cartoon bubbles, you know, like when people in comic books are talking to each other. And he had written in them, I love you, Joe. And he said back, I love you, Jesus. And then he just drew these arrows showing that they were just like saying it back and forth to each other. I love you, Joe. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Joe. I love you, Jesus. And at the bottom, he'd written, this is um, Joe and, and my Jesus. This is how we pray. And I remember just feeling like some dislocated bone in my body just like popped back into place of saying, maybe this is what it is. Under all the other things that prayer is and has been and can be, and, and the possibilities and invitations of prayer, um, I've never lost the sense that the invitation all the time is to say that to Jesus and to hear that back from Jesus and that this is how we pray. This is the conversation that's happening underneath all of it, whether we're praying for one another Um praying contemplatively, praying in church, the thing that's happening underneath has to be the love of God that is present and active and towards us and holding us all the time. Um, And that changed how I positioned myself in prayer um, forever, really.
0: Psychologists have found that self-perception is a powerful indicator of how we see ourselves and others, um, the world and God. And and your your writing and your work, especially in this book, is directed towards people who need to rethink uh, the insufficiencies they might see in themselves uh, to see what God sees. You know, in in all your writing and all your assessment of where we are in the religious landscape, why do you think or uh, what causes so many people within the christian movement especially those that have uh, left the institutional church to have such a a skewed self-perception you know what is it about what we are teaching people and guiding people that this is the conclusion they have for how god sees them um, versus you know what you were just speaking about about what your son sees as he contemplates prayer
1: You know this is one of the things that i'm actually really thankful for in my tradition of origin i think a lot of folks oftentimes we are um we aren't even aware sometimes of the um, box that we were given for god or the understanding we were given for god and i know that there's a lot of people who came up in traditions where they were told over and over and over again like you're a worm you know, God didn't have to save you. God couldn't even look at you, you know, like just you're garbage, you know, like that kind of stuff. And it it is very destructive, um, you know, view of humanity and God's love for you, um, which is always conditional. Um, you know, God as anger, God as judge. And one of the things that are, you know, that I have found to be a a gift of growing up in the movements that I grew up in, Um, and trust me, there's enough baggage and trauma to balance the scales, but not on this point anyway, there was this profound sense that God wanted your flourishing, um, that you were beloved by God, that Jesus came to give life and life that is more abundant, um, that the thief was the one who came to steal, kill, and destroy, that anything that, um, that was not for your, flour- your flourishing or your wholeness did not come from God's hand. Um, and that's a big oversimplification for sure. But I remember it, it is something that I've I've been thankful for ever since to say the, the initial thing that I heard about God was that God is good. And and all of the time, God is good, and that God's heart is for you. Um, that you know that uh, John three seventeen that Jesus didn't come into the world to uh, to condemn the world, but to save the world. Um, being the good shepherd and the you know the resurrection and the way and the life and all these different things. And so to me, that changed how I perceived and read the whole rest of Scripture. The way I understood even hardship or sorrow or grief was that God's presence. Um, was was very near in those thin places. And so I think sometimes that's why it's kind of interesting when people sometimes can kind of, you know, look down on or, um, you know, eye roll a bit some of the language around deconstruction or wilderness or disorientation or, you know, chaos, whatever language, you know, you kind of want to use for it's like, well, I guess it's just become really, really fashionable. <laughs> right to, to have these conversations. And what a lot of people seem to miss is that this is really good and necessary deep soul work, that it's not just theology for the fun of it. It's we're talking about survival. We're talking about um how people, like you said, perceive themselves. Are they able to see themselves as worthy and deeply beloved by God? Because if you begin to live like you are loved, that begins to change everything about you know, how you interact with the world, what you believe about other people. Um, Almost all of our stuff can be traced back to what we really believe about the nature and character of God, who we think God is, and how we think God sees us. And when you begin to deconstruct that and begin to rebuild from a place of worth and value and love, um, I think that that changes even how you approach prayer, but it also changes how you approach justice and how you approach um, one another and how you approach your neighborhood and your community of people um, because there's not this sense of scarcity or performance or being on this treadmill of trying to earn things. There, you're starting from a place of belovedness and I think that that does heal us and then that in turn helps us to be part of the healing of the world.
0: Your things you wrote in the book, um, love can and does and will transform us in every way, our ideologies, our opinions, our habits, our values, our priorities, our very names, but it is not a prerequisite or a requirement. It's not a behavioral modification. It never is, not for love. Uh, so, you know, you're a, a tremendously self-effacing person and would never admit that your work is the best in this book. So what what are some of the other entries that you would want to to highlight from the book?
1: You know me too well, Andy. <laughs> you know, there are so many, Honestly, I could definitely say all of them, right? I mean, they all have spoken to me in so many different ways. But um, Micah Boyette's A Prayer Against Efficiency, as a kind of a starting point right out the gate of the book, um, was really beautiful to me. And in Amina Brown's, um, she wrote this beautiful poem, she's a spoken word poet. And in hers, she has this line in there that says um, that to hear God, you have to be willing to experience what's holy in the places that most people don't deem sacred. And that to me is like a huge portal through which you can just fall right into the embrace of God. Um, the one, There was one called uh, Prayer of a Weary Black Woman by Shaniqua Walker-Barnes that just is raw and just her grief and her longing, um, it felt like a holy place that we, you almost want to take your shoes off because you're just like, I can sit and hold space for this. This is so necessary to say and to, to receive. Um, Alicia Crosby, she ended up writing one um, called a letter to my future self in face of chronic crisis, I think. And Alicia has uh, fibromyalgia like I do. And so this beautiful letter that she's writing to herself for someday um, about prayer and about care for yourself and about embodiment is just really beautiful. And I mean, honestly, there's so many others that I could kind of point to, but probably the um, other one, uh, two other ones, maybe, oh, you know, I'll just stick with one, I know I'm taking too long, but one was called uh, For All the So-Called Lost by Emmy Kegler, Um, and it is such a beautiful prayer kind of based on that uh, parable in Luke about the woman who had 10 coins. And if she lost one, wouldn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and, you know, search diligently until she finds it. And she reimagines and prays as if we are the lost coin. Um, She has this phrase in there about um, being, what was it again? I should turn over so I don't butcher it. The congregation of the forgotten corner, like just, she calls, refers to us as like the quarter that's clinking around at the bottom of God's washing machine, um, and what it means to be found. Um, for every sheep and coin and child called lost, what does it mean to be found? Again, it's healing and and really beautiful. And then there's other prayers that um, have ministered so powerfully to me. Lisa Sharon Harper has one called a prayer for America that's literally just, if you've never learned how to pray lament. This is like going to school on how to pray lament, um, and yet pray alongside of her and articulate that. So yeah, it's it's a it's a really powerful actually. That's probably way more than you wanted, but there you go. You asked me to pick a favorite, and I gave you like seven, and I wanted to give you like thirty. So I, I, no, I-, I admire my own restraint. <laughs>
0: Well, and I'll I'll just say this: uh, you can take as much time as you want. You're, you're Sarah Bessie, and there's a reason why we're having you on this podcast. So, if you want to take the next hour to highlight each of them, I will gladly oh sit here.
1: <laughs> so true. Like even the just last um, last little while, there were some things that kind of were coming out in the news, and I just found myself just groaning. Uh, almost in prayer, right? Like I don't even know what words to do and I actually ended up picking up um, Sandra uh, Maria von Obstel's uh, prayer about when we're feeling overwhelmed by darkness. Um, Like there's this liturgy of longing that she wrote, um, you know, that we believe and we feel overwhelmed, you know, and and then what it means to say, give us hope not to be overcome. Sometimes that's all you can pray for. Give us hope not to be overcome by these things Um, and having language for that or someone to sit alongside of you in that, I think is really, really beautiful.
0: So um, I know you wrote an you know, introduction and then a benediction to the book. Uh, so you ultimately could say, well, go read the book, and you'll find out my hope for my readers." But what what is your hope for your readers for this book?
1: Um, I don't know. I yeah, I do. I do definitely feel a great sense of possibility. Um, with this book, I think, especially for people who have maybe had their prayer life very highly mediated and controlled, um, because it's my real hope that people who um, have lost prayer would be able to to find new and ancient pathways back towards prayer, that they would um, be invited into almost like the prayer circle that is existing always in time and space, right? That there would be this sense of feeling a little bit less alone. Um, And I would like people to have permission to begin to experiment and play and develop, you know, wonder and curiosity about prayer again. Um, And I think that there's a real sense of, you know, one of the things that I, my, my, probably one of my, my bigger hopes for the book is that people would um, feel so fully held completely in their humanity by the love of God. I think a lot of times we kind of have tricked out this idea in our mind that you have to edit out the things that you think God won't approve of in order to pray. Um, And I think that what this book does so demonstrates so beautifully and, and just embodies, so I think that that's embodied permission, is this sense of, no, you get to bring your whole self to prayer. That this this place of intimacy um, with God, this altar where you meet with God, however that looks for you, you get to bring all of you to that space and say, you know, whether it's your, your grief, or your longing, um, your, your worship, your disorientation, your sense of hope, and hopefulness, um, that all of these things can be brought to this place of welcome and goodness and be held completely and fully by the love of God and be transformed. Um, and so that's, that's one of my biggest hopes for it. Um, but at the end of the day, I'd settle for, you know, a few people feeling a little bit less alone and maybe just kind of pulling up their own imaginary chair on on their own imaginary back deck and just sitting down with God. And taking a deep breath or two.
0: Well, I thought I might end with an with an easy one, uh, since I identified you in the opener as post evangelical American's uh, favorite Canadian. Um, what would be one thing about Canada that most Americans maybe don't understand accurately? <laughs>
1: oh we could be here for a while (laughs) well besides besides i do have to point
0: this out that you know none of y'all's hockey teams have actually won the cup and oh boo but i know you're a bruins fan so there's that that's that's something we can unpack but also
1: how many canadians are on the teams that have won that's the other question would you have would the americans have won it if it hadn't been for the canadians i mean we could go to the gold medal olympic games but anyway um, I think probably one that always makes me laugh the most is um, I mean, other than I don't understand why Americans are so suspicious of like healthcare and <laughs> universal healthcare or civil public discourse. I can't really understand that. But um, I think the one that always kind of makes me laugh is how it feels like Americans don't understand how and when we deploy the word A. <laughs> like they think we just sprinkle it on everything and just it's like this this word that just kind of fits in between words and all over words and just you know is all throughout every paragraph but the truth is is that we use a to turn a statement into a question and so it'd be like not the equivalent of a huh but instead of saying like you know what's uh you know is it cold enough you'd say it's cold out there eh (laughs) so that's that's the proper use of A. You use it to turn your statement into a question. There you go. That's your education.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I, I just imagine, you know, that old-timey commercial, you know, the things you learn going across the screen there. The uh, um, more you know. The, the, yeah. <laughs> 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 See, and, and throughout the interview, you actually said my favorite uh, Canadian pronunciation of a word, which is the word, I'm not even going to attempt to say it, but when you use the word multiple times about... Uh, that's just about my favorite uh, thing to hear Canadians say.
1: There you go. (laughs) Well,
0: if you want to stay connected with Sarah, check out sarabessie.com. Check out her soundbite contribution on social media. Of course, go out and purchase a rhythm of prayer wherever books are sold. Um, Sarah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation. Um, And beyond that, uh, this thank you for. Uh, your brilliant spiritual leadership and, uh, guiding us into renewal through the power of prayer.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Andy. I really enjoyed our conversation. Blessings to you and all of your folks.
0: This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.